Great. Moira, thank you very much indeed. Let's keep that open and pray as we look at this part of God's Word together this morning. Lord, yes, we thank you for the wisdom with which you prepare your followers for what it means to follow you uh, and the integrity with which you teach. And we pray that we may have receptive hearts to learn the lessons which you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week the little calendar on my phone reminded me that October the 17th is the anniversary of the martyrdom of someone called Ignatius of Antioch. Now, he was a church leader in the generation after the New Testament, after Peter and Paul. He preached Christ in the Roman Empire and was arrested under Emperor Trajan. He died in the Colosseum in Rome, uh, we think in AD 107. He died a very unpleasant death. Uh, He was, first of all, uh, set alight burning in oil, and then the remains of his, his body were pulled apart in the Colosseum by wild beasts. More encouragingly, in the same week, I was reading in the, the newspaper Evangelicals Now about the witness of Christians in Iran in our generation. Under persecution from the Islamic government, the number of Christians in Iran has risen in the last 40 years from estimated 500 to 500,000. And people think it's partly the the courageous witness and uh, people from the Islamic culture seeing the courage of Christians under persecution that's making them leave Islam and turn to Christ. And here is Jesus in the middle of a section of his teaching on what following him looks like. You might remember if you've been here, this is one of five sections of teaching through the whole of the gospel. And as we saw last time, uh, it's a call to be co-workers of his. He invites us to join in reaping the harvest of people into his kingdom. But it's also uh, a warning about the cost of following him and joining in his work. We were called last week to courage, weren't we? As well as discretion in speaking about Christ. So we're halfway through this lesson of Jesus in chapter 10, and there are, we're going to see a whole series of sayings of Jesus, collected together maybe by Matthew, but we're going to look at them under two main headings this morning. And again, it is going to be quite challenging stuff, isn't it? But we will see a short third finishing word from Jesus that's very encouraging. So what does following Jesus, what does working with Jesus look like? Well, it's about adversity. And here's the first heading. In the first uh, seven or eight verses, Jesus' work involves overcoming fear. James and I were at a conference this week for Christian ministers, and there was a Christian psychiatrist there reminding us that if we think that Christian life or ministry is just going to be easy, we're naive. His little phrase was, adversity is normal. Such a very realistic, helpful reminder, isn't it? Adversity is normal. Hardship will come, and it's what we do in hardship that really matters. You may have heard the story about the explorer Ernest Shackleton, who did a number of Antarctic expeditions, and for one of them, he supposedly put out this advert for people to go on the, exhibition, uh, the expedition with him. 
Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And that's what they call expectation management, isn't it? Jesus is in this chapter managing our expectations, or better perhaps, preparing us for hardship if we choose to join in his work of speaking about him in the world. So we look at verse 24, uh, where Jesus has that phrase about fear. The student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. Well, what's he mean there? He means you don't expect a higher status than your professor at university. If you're a student. You don't expect a bigger desk than your boss has at work. So why expect an easier life than Jesus, your rabbi, has as he faces hostility, and we'll see in the next few chapters of Matthew, increasing hostility, and ultimately arrest and death. And he gives us in the next few verses three reasons why when we face hostility, we should not fear. You may have noticed in the reading, he actually says three times, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And we're just going to see what he says around each of those occurrences of that little phrase. Don't be afraid, fear not. So the first one is in verses 26 onwards. Don't be afraid, verse 26. For there's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. The point here is we shouldn't fear hostile reception from some people. Again, let's remind ourselves, not everyone. Lots of people are very open to Christ, very willing to listen or come to church. But we shouldn't fear hostility because his identity is no longer meant to be a secret. It's meant to be public. It's a public faith. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew, Jesus performed miracles and once or twice he told those he healed not to tell anyone about him. You think, well, why then do we have to? Well, it's because of the resurrection. Everything changed on Easter morning. When Jesus rose from the dead, he then started telling the disciples, go and tell the world about me. He told the woman at the tomb, or the angel told the woman at the tomb, uh, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's risen. Easter means it's no longer hidden, it's public. Jesus' identity is now a public truth for the world to hear and respond to. No longer a secret to whisper, but as he says, a name to proclaim from the rooftops. And again, that's a challenge, isn't it, when you and I, we prefer to be private about our faith, not to tell people we're Christians, but Jesus says, no, since Easter morning, this is a public truth. Don't be ashamed of it. So don't fear because of that. Don't fear also, we're going to be quite fast as you can see this morning, don't be afraid because God's power is greater than man's. Verse 28 now. Don't be afraid of the one who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. He's talking there um, about the human opposition to Christ. In his day, it would have been the Roman emperors. Can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Don't, uh, then he says, rather, 
be afraid of the one, the capital O there, a clue that this is God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear man and you lose everything. Fear God, well, and you gain everything. An extract from the words Ignatius that I started with wrote to his friend Polycarp shortly before his arrest and death. He said, let the fire, the wild beasts, the breaking bones, the torments of the devil and hell itself come upon me that I may win Christ Jesus. Fear God, not man. And he's not talking about the the trembling fear of a a kind of irrational deity. He's talking about the, the reverent fear of God who alone holds the keys of life and death. Fear him, trust him, honor him. Fear God, not man. And like Ignatius, the fear of death will no longer hold you. So, Jesus' identity is public. God's power is greater. Thirdly, don't be afraid because the Father's care, God's care, is greater than you can imagine. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, says Jesus, yet not one of them falls to the ground outside your Father's care? Now, I'm not an expert on birds. I know that sparrows are kind of small brown things and not particularly spectacular or perhaps valuable. Apparently in Jesus' day, they were often sold very cheaply as staple diet for poor people, rather like, I guess, a tin of baked beans today. And yet, says Jesus, your father records the death of every single sparrow. He he counts them all. Then he says, doesn't he, what about the hairs on your head? He he numbers the hairs on your head, but even if you don't, how many people here, by the way, have you ever counted the number of hairs on your head? Have you ever done it? We haven't, have we? For some of us, it's easier than for others. Uh, but none of us have ever actually counted the number of... And yet, says Jesus, your father knows how many hairs there are on your head, how many sparrows are going to die today. Your father cares more than you can imagine for you. How much more than he cares for the sparrows does he care for you, his children? Don't fear what may happen if you speak out for Christ. He cares for you. Now, fear, of course, is a very powerful thing. Uh, We all experience fear uh, of all kinds of things, some more than others, but we all all know it, don't we? The fear of losing control of your life, the fear of what someone may, may say, the fear of losing a friendship I thought that was, was going to develop somewhere. And if, like me, you naturally prefer self-preservation to going public about being a Christian or to inviting them to church or offering them a gospel to read the original accounts about Jesus, if you find that a, a frightening thought, take heart, says Jesus, that the real control is in the hands of the Heavenly Father. He has the control that really matters. That he is more powerful than any human opposition that we may ever encounter. And his truth is public. 
Jesus is not a secret. One of the things we say to our students when they um, arrive here at university is, is make it known early on to your friends, your flatmates, that you are a Christian. And they probably won't, you know, put you in prison for it. They, they probably will be quite friendly despite not being Christians themselves. But make it known early because it gets so much harder later on once you've lived with them for a whole semester then to let it get known that you're a Christian that far down the line. And by then you may have had to make some compromises that you really didn't want to make. So Jesus' work involves overcoming our fear. Secondly, the other big point this morning, Jesus' work, verse 32, involves expecting conflict. Overcoming fear, expecting conflict. Again, the the sections of the teaching here, they're quite hard to really divide up. It's a cluster of sayings, this chapter, isn't it? But it does seem that Jesus moves from verse 33, from that topic of how we're going to feel as we go public about Christ amongst our families and friends, to where will this lead to? Where could be the consequences or costs if we do follow and work for Christ? And it's therefore, it's about expectations. What's going to happen? What could happen? And there are three, really, again, that Jesus draws out here. From verses 32 and 33, he says, expect the pressure not to identify with Jesus. Expect to feel that pressure not to identify. Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. I think we all know, don't we, that identifying with someone or something can be costly or difficult. Being a Norwich City supporter, for instance. But especially if it's someone that's, that's unpopular or marginal or regarded as eccentric or even dangerous. And Jesus says, whoever acknowledges me, I will acknowledge one day. Whoever disowns me, I will disown. He reminds us that the fear of rejection for identifying with him has got to be weighed in my head against the much greater fear that one day, standing before his throne, he will say, I never knew you. You weren't really one of mine. So the fear of the pressure of identifying with Jesus. Uh, Expect also conflict. Conflict from verse 34 in personal relationships. Families is the particular setting here, isn't it? Now let's be straight. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers. That was back in chapter 5 of Matthew. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're not called to go and be deliberately difficult. We're called to make peace wherever we can. But Jesus knows that his claims are so outrageous to be the Son of God, calling allegiance from all people. Uh, His personality is so compelling that his impact on people will be divisive, just like a sharp sword. It will even bring conflict within families that the closest 
blood relationships. Verse 35, I've come to turn a man against his father and a daughter, so just over the page in a few in the church Bibles, and a daughter against her mother. Verse 35. Uh, those words echo a text in Micah from the Old Testament, a prophet, as your footnote might tell you there. And there God is describing how sin, not, by the way, primarily God, sin will divide family life. Jesus is saying by quoting that, his coming on earth to bring God's grace will at the same time expose sinfulness in human hearts. It will reveal our natural desire to be independent of him and not to follow him. And that's what's going to divide families because some will respond to Christ with faith and delight in following, but some, through our sinful hearts, will reject him. That's why he says that unless I love him, even more than my family, I'm not worthy of him, or you might say up to being a disciple. They're very challenging words, aren't they? Very challenging words. And perhaps painful words for some of us here for whom this might be a reality. He's not saying, is it, that I don't love my nearest and dearest? I still do. I must. I'm called to. But I love Christ even more. I love him for his majesty, his mercy, his grace, his beauty, his goodness, his kindness to me. Thirdly, and really on a similar angle here, verse 38, expect sacrifice or cost in personal circumstances. Verse 39 is really explaining this pair of verses, 38, 39. 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is really the heart of Christian Discipleship, what a Christian is. It's finding your life through losing it. Finding eternity through leaving the world behind. Being ready to lose my life in order that Christ will save it. Abandoning the human desire for control or for comfort that we all feel in order to receive freedom and blessing in eternity. Now, if you walked by me in the first century and you were carrying a big wooden cross, I wouldn't expect ever to see you alive again. I wouldn't see you walking by the next day still carrying your cross or the day after. You are on your way to your execution. So when Jesus speaks of carrying your cross in verse 38... He's not talking there, the kind of slightly frivolous way we talk about, oh, it's just a cross I have to bear, you know, a bad knee um, or a difficult in-law, life circumstances. He's saying that to share in Christ's work is to die to this world. It's a huge challenge, isn't it? Huge challenge. The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was martyred under Adolf Hitler for opposing the Nazi regime in the name of Christ. And sometime before he uh, was arrested and was shot, 
he wrote these words. I'll put them on the screen for you. He said, The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our union with Christ. That means when we first follow him. When Christ calls a man, woman, he bids him come and die. And we can't escape the words of Christ here, can we? About the cost, the sacrifice of following him. For someone here this morning, it is, isn't it, that the call of Christ is to take up your cross and to start that today. You've been on the edge, you've sensed his glory, his compelling person, and he's calling you to take up that cross and follow him today. Knowing that he first carried the cross sinlessly to bear our sins away, but knowing also what he calls you to. Come and ask me afterwards if if today is the day that you know he's calling you to carry that cross, to start following. Someone else here, as we've thought about the, the real conflict that it can bring in relationships if we name Christ as Lord You're being reminded, aren't you, that that to keep loving your husband or your wife, even though they would rather you didn't come to church, is is something you are called to do, and yet without compromising Christ. It's hard, isn't it? But that's the call. Or the call made for someone to choose not to marry that person because they don't yet at least share your love for Christ. Expect conflict, expect a cost. Other parts of the world, people are fleeing persecution uh, because they follow Christ and speak of him, even though it means losing family, being cut off from family to do so. Some of us here, though, we know what taking up our cross has felt like. We've known what it is, the joy, ironically, paradoxically, the joy of following Christ even through the cost of it. Uh, Living more simply so that we can give more to God's work. Missing that promotion at work because we refuse to make compromises about Christ to satisfy the boss's demands. Well, be encouraged, if that's you this morning, if that's you and me, that's the path to life that Jesus calls us to, isn't it? Losing your life that you will find it now and for eternity. Jesus says, press on. That's the path. So lots of challenge this morning in those two themes of overcoming fear and of expecting conflict. But let's finish where Jesus finishes in verses 40 to 42 with a huge encouragement that his work involves representing him, being his ambassadors. Uh, so verse 40. The one who receives you receives me. He receives you receives me. And he receives me receives the one who sent me. See what he's saying there. As you and I go uh, this time tomorrow off to work, next week back at the school gate, we're going to encounter people. We're going to pray that we can speak of Christ to them in some way. 
And he says, those who receive you are receiving me in you and receiving the Father that sent me in you. When we speak of Christ to others, we are as Christ speaking to them. What a thought that is. What a privilege. He's trusted us with his words. He's trusted us to carry his life. When we walk into the house, it's as if Christ is walking in. Now, if you and I visit a friend's house, we might you know, go around for a meal or a cup of tea. You might take a small gift with you, a box of chocolates maybe, or some bunch of flowers. And Jesus says, when you and I walk into a friend's life bearing him, we bring a gift, a, a reward, He's a prophet's reward, he says, verse 41. Uh, he doesn't mean a bunch of flowers, a box of chocolates, though that's a nice idea. Or even Amazon vouchers. What's the prophet's reward? It's the prophet's words, isn't it? It's the message from God that he brings you. That's the prophet's gift. That's the righteous person's gift to the one that receives it. We might simply say today, when you and I get to know someone at the school gate and pray for them and uh, perhaps invite them out for coffee and begin to find them opening up in life to us, we bring them a gift. This. The words of Jesus. And it's free, of course. It's the currency that we bear, that we give away as Christians. The message of Jesus. Ambassadors of his. Maybe someone here, you've recently begun to come along to church and you've come across Jesus' people, Christians, and he's asking you this morning, isn't he, will you receive them as what they are, messengers I've sent to you with my words, so that you can hear and come to life as well, uh, or will you actually shut them out? That's the implied challenge there, isn't it, for some of us. Will you join their work or hinder it? But what a privilege for all of us this morning who are followers of Jesus, that we are, through Christ's extraordinary grace, unworthy as we are, we are to him, not just Christians or uh, even members of his family, we are ambassadors of the living Christ. We are prophets carrying his message. We are little ones in his family until the day that we stand before him. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. We pray for each other this morning as we've heard from Jesus, haven't we, some real challenges. It may have highlighted some real situations that are difficult for us in following him. So we pray for grace, his grace to help us both to overcome fear and to expect and endure conflict and hardship all with the privilege of being his ambassadors in whom he lives so again if something's touched uh, something in your life this morning I do encourage you at the end of the service to perhaps have a word with someone next to you, ask them to pray with you or come to the front for someone to pray with you. Come and find me or Jason. We finish there now with a prayer uh, of St. Patrick 
Christ be with me, Christ within me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ beside me, Christ to win me, Christ to comfort and restore me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all that love me, Christ in the life of friend and stranger. In his name. Amen.